Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What does a man who claims to be the reincarnation of Civil War General John B. Gordon want you to know he's learned about life after death? There is no death. We are immortal. Everybody you ever loved, ever will love, that will continue with you when you go back. We might as well say we'll go back home. And a past life researcher explains the practice of cadaver markings. So families will mark a dead body with the purpose of tracking their loved one into the next life. And hear a little bit of audio from my three and a half hour long past life regression. On your head, do you have any hair or a hat of any kind? I'm not wearing a hat. I do have a good beard. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I want to believe in past lives. I really do. I mean, if when we die, we don't go poof into nothingness, to me, the thing that makes the most sense is that we continue on, right? I mean, everything else that exists is interested in evolving. So if our souls or spirits or whatever we call ourselves are indeed living, why wouldn't we want to continue evolving, right? And for that matter, why wouldn't we try our next hand on a different planet, on a different dimension? I don't know. I like the idea. Now, there are two things today's show is going to look at. Reincarnation and past life regressions. And it's important that you know that these are two different things. As you'll hear, past life regressions are used as a form of therapy. Whether they're evidence of a past life or not is, to a degree, not entirely relevant. Of course, if you know just a little bit about me or this show, you know that I had to understand this for myself. So at the end of this episode, you'll hear a bit from my recent three and a half hour past life regression. And you'll meet a researcher who studies claims, many by young children, of past life memories. But let's get started with the guy whose story is... It's really amazing. Jeffrey Keene is a retired assistant fire chief from Westport, Connecticut, who claims to be the reincarnation of Civil War General John B. Gordon. Okay, let me back up. The nutshell version of his story is that back in 1991, he was visiting Antietam, the site of the deadliest one-day battle in American military history. He's walking down the sunken road, a particularly brutal location during the battle, and he suddenly felt completely overwhelmed with... All kinds of emotions. Just everything you could think of. Anger and sadness, and uh, uh, it had to do with the men, the bravery of the men that day, and the stupidity of war, and, and stuff like that. I, I I started crying. I didn't feel any pain. I thought maybe I was having a heart attack or something was going on. A year and a half later, Jeffrey's at a birthday party, which fell on Halloween. At the party, there's a palm reader who was also a psychic. She volunteered that he was a soldier in a past life, that he died in battle. She said, but you hung around for a long time, and you were hovering over your body, and you yelled, no. And I said to her, for some unknown reason, not yet. And she says, yes, like not yet. I said, are you sure the soldier was dead? She said, oh, you had holes all through you and everything. So Jeffrey remembers that back when he had that experience at Antietam, he bought a magazine from the gift shop about everything that happened there. But he never read it. He just tossed it onto a pile of phone books and forgot about it. But now, after this party, he goes home, finds the magazine, flips through it, opens it to a section about the sunken road. And there's a two-word quote. says, not yet. The hair stands up on the back of my neck. And I start reading it. And at that spot was a uh, colonel 
John B. Gordon, who was with the 6th Alabama, and he was wounded, let's see, five times that day. The last round hit him through the face, and I figured that's what killed him, but I noticed a picture of a general, John B. Gordon. I said, wait a minute, he's a colonel in the story, and here he is, a general. I said, he survived. And I looked at the face, and I tell everybody, I said, I know the face very well. I shave it every morning. This is the part where, as long as you're not driving right now, you should Google Jeffrey Keene reincarnation. This dude looks just like General John B. Gordon. And I don't mean a little bit. I mean near identical. And as if that wasn't enough, he has scars on his face and other parts of his body that are in similar locations as the war wounds that the general got during his time in the military. And as if that wasn't enough, Jeffrey told me about the day he turned 30 years old, which was 15 years before he had this whole experience at Antietam. He developed a severe pain in his jaw and shoulder and neck. He thought he was having a heart attack, so he goes to Norwalk Hospital. After a few hours, the pain subsided, and they couldn't find a cause. But... Turns out that Gordon was born in 1832, and the Battle of Antietam was 1862. He was 30 years old. He shot through the face. So here I was back on my 30th birthday in the hospital with wounds that mimicked his wounding at Antietam. The Sci-Fi Channel did an exhaustive fact-checking of Jeffrey for their Proof Positive series, which we'll have a link to on our website, of course. And not only did they do a facial scan to confirm the similar scars, but they went to Norwalk Hospital and found those records from his ER visit the night of his 30th birthday. So, okay, what or whom did he think it was that led him to that spot at Antietam that day? Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Deep breath. I'm going to get so deep that you could drop a pebble down my throat and come back in a week to hear the splash. <laughs> okay. I'm ready for it. I believe that we all come from the same place. Now, you could call that the source. You can call that God. You could call it Frank, whatever name you want to give it. It's sort of like a big ocean, and we are a drop from that ocean. You could say that it's uh, God, the source, experiencing itself. We have, I believe we have great input into our lives. It's just uh, we, when we get here, though, there's like a veil that drops down, and we learn stuff here and then remember some of the stuff that we're allowed to remember. We have somewhat of a script in our mind, but there's still that free will thing where we can kind of like run amok or take the wrong path or the wrong turn and then try to get back onto the right path. So uh, I guess you would call a lot of people might call it the wee little voice that you know they hear. Um, we're here. We're here following a script, but sometimes we walk off the path, and sometimes we get back on it. And I also imagine we learn to be more receptive, to be in a mode that's more open-minded, to be present. You know, the more we uh, focus on the stuff in our past or worry about the future, the less present we are. And when we're present, we can maybe be more open to seeing things and experiencing things. But I I do really, really want to know how this has affected how you view death. Because um, I, up until the last year and a half or so, have been capital A atheist, anti-woo crusader. And then in this past period of time, I've had some things happen that have just starkly thrown any sureness I have about anything completely in the air, which has been painful and also incredibly transformative and exciting. And so as I've been exploring all the possibilities that we can conceive of, um, it's got, I've actually felt a lot uh, calmer about the idea of dying. Like there's something really comforting about this idea that this is not the first time and it won't be the last time for any of us. Is that, is that what's changed in you too? I'm going to make you feel much better today. Okay, I'm ready. There is no death. We are immortal. We never die. We are ageless. We were created by God. So that is our lineage. We are the children of God or the source or whatever name you care to give it. But being from that source, that kind of makes us 
gods also, small g. We have the ability to create and destroy. It all depends on our intent when we get up in the morning. If you want to get up in the morning and do something nice for someone, you do something nice. You want to go rob a bank, it's all up to you. they got that free will thing that drives us crazy. But the main thing that lasts through our lifetimes in, in the earth realm here is uh, education. It's like you could advance to the level you want to go to. You want to go to uh, like high school, graduate school, so on, that type of thing. Or you could just sit and stare into the electronic device and you know play uh, video games and all that. So it's, it's up to us what we do while we're here. But one of the things that I find really great is love. Love will last forever. Everybody you ever loved, ever will love, that will continue with you when you go back. We might as well say we'll go back home. Pretend we came to source as an ocean, and you are a drop out of that ocean. And even though you go back into that ocean, you are part of all of that but that you are still that drop. You have that uniqueness of that drop. And a lot of times what you go through is shared with <laughs> is shared with others so they can learn from it. But uh, that's pretty much the gist of it. Don't you find it interesting that, like, you know, we we have all these religions that have come and gone and will come and ones we don't even know about. We have psychedelics. We have all sorts of means to try to figure out exactly what you're saying. And, and, and don't, you find it, don't you find it interesting that no matter what we do, it all comes back to the same idea that if we don't go poof, we are indeed some part of something greater and love is everything. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, it keeps, this is the, the refrain. I, I became, a, I'm dyslexic. I have very much, Great difficulty with math and reading and stuff like that. It takes me a long time. Sometimes I have to keep reading paragraphs over and over again for things to sink in. But still, I managed to become an assistant chief and did pretty good in my career. A job that I would have done even without the pay, but I didn't want to tell them that. Yeah, um, same here. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> but I was studying books on reincarnation and, and, and picked up books on the Civil War and picked up books on different uh, uh, religions and so on, Judaism, Buddhism, you, you name it. And if I found that those religions, if you take them, you take away the smoke and mirrors and all the, the traditional stuff that they were throwing around and get to the main gist of everything, a lot of times you could take Buddha sayings and you ask somebody who said that and they're going to say Jesus. You take stuff that Jesus said, you say, who said that? And they'll say Buddha and so on. A lot of it was basic common sense. The golden rule seems to rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Also, here's a real good one. I did an interview about 10 years ago. I told them, they said, what do you see for the future? I said, we've got a problem. We've advanced too much technologically and not enough spiritually. I said, we're going into a very bad time where we're going to need each other more than ever. And I said, if you remember the, the saying about uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, well, that's because they are you somewhat. They are another one of those drops going through, that came from the same place and going through the experiences that they're going through. And wouldn't it be easier to feel closer to those neighbors if they knew what you knew? <laughs> that is sort of the challenge of it. Like they don't know, some of them don't know that yet. And that's a condition you're up against when you're trying to be full of love and care. What I find sad is we on earth have had the ability to make it possible for everybody in the world to be drinking fresh water, have enough food, have shelter, and uh, we do other things like uh, get wars going to uh, get different corporations uh, more money and make people rich. We're going through, this is a good chance for us to straighten everything out, and it looks like it might happen, but we're going to have a lot of rough periods, and there's going to be some truths come out. There's going to be so many truths that come out about the lying and the misdeeds and mischievous things that have gone on recently through history that people are really, you know, they'd say the truth will set you free. Well, first it'll piss you off. 
but there's going to be a lot of truths come out, and a lot of people are are going to be upset. But I I believe we're going to straighten it out and come out a, a lot better. There is a passage in your book, Someone Else's Yesterday, where you kind of take a big picture look at reincarnation and, you know, like, what if we all believed in it? What would that do to us? So I would love if you would read that section from your book published nearly 20 years ago, which begins with, pause for a moment and contemplate. Pause for a moment and contemplate what the world would be like if reincarnation was proven to be a fact of life. How would we then treat others? When dealing with family, friends, and acquaintances, we would need to ask ourselves some questions like, who are these souls? What are their relationships to me? Am I to learn something from them, or am I to be their teacher? The possibilities are endless. We all live in the same house, and the house goes smaller every day. This planet has become the global village. No longer does it take the written word to tell of events on the other side of the earth. With a flick of a switch, we can watch events unfold. Every country affects all the others with their finances, pollution problems, and petty hostilities. Now more than ever, everyone needs to change their way of thinking. No more I, but us. No more them, but we. We leave our mark on ourselves and those around us. Let us strive to use a gentle touch. Well, Jeffrey Keene, General John B. Gordon, and whomever else you have been and will be, thank you so much for telling me your story. It's great talking to you. Jeffrey's book is called Someone Else's Yesterday, The Confederate General and Connecticut Yankee. You can see more of his work at ctpublic.org slash audacious. When we get back, why does a past life researcher look to children for clues about reincarnation? Because the kids remember names. They say, I was this person giving that name. I was from this village giving the name of the village. That's enough. Plus, hear audio from my experience in a past life regression. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. I feel like I remember. I remember you so clearly. I've seen this all before, I'm sure. Don't you remember me? Maybe I was a fit. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about past lives and past life regressions. In the next segment, I'll take you along for my past life regression session in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. But right now, meet James Matlock. He's a research fellow at the Parapsychology Foundation, and he's the author of many books, including Signs of Reincarnation, Exploring Beliefs, Cases, and Theory, and I Saw a Light and Came Here, Children's Experiences of Reincarnation. He told me about Dr. Ian Stevenson, who died in 2007. 
He was a psychiatrist and the founder and director of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. And in the 1960s, he began studying these stories of children who would reportedly remember past lives. He started off going to Asia, to India, Sri Lanka, it was Ceylon at the time, to other countries out there where you have a lot of these stories, right? But there are more than stories because the kids remember names. They say, I was this person given that name. I was from this village giving the name of the village. That's enough for not only Stevenson, but before Stevenson, their parents to go back to these places because the kids meanwhile are clamoring to go back. I want to go back and see my family, right? Um, and it's highly unlikely they were perusing a, a world atlas and not at two or three, right? I, I don't have kids, but it's hard for me to imagine. Yeah. In, in, in the 1960s. I mean, we didn't have the internet then. We didn't have TV in these small villages. Right. I mean, there's just like, huh? You recently posted about uh, birthmarks yeah. and things like that. Will you, will you talk about what you've recently surmised about birthmarks and, uh, their connection to past lives as you see it? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're talking about my most recent paper, right? That's coming out in a journal called Explore. And what it did is looked at cases with intermissions. That's the term we use for the period between death and rebirth. Intermissions? Intermission is what we call it. That's, that's a, you know, that's what we call it. Returning to non-physical. Yeah, I mean, interval between death and rebirth. And Stevenson called it the intermission, so that's become the, the term we use. So of less than nine months, and what that means is that the, the conception of the pre of the new body had already occurred when the person died, right? That gestation was already underway when the person died. And so I looked at those to see whether there were any physical signs, birthmarks, birth defects, whatever. Because somebody had asked me in my reincarnation group if there were. And I didn't know the answer to that because nobody had looked at it before. So I looked at it and I found 36 cases, published cases that were solved. That is, that's the term we use when you've actually identified the previous person. So 36 cases with identified previous lives in which there were intermissions of less than nine months, right? In 32 of those 36 cases, that's almost 90% of them. There were physical anomalies like birthmarks, birth defects, other things. 90%. So a huge number. And when you wouldn't expect it. Those birthmarks matched some characteristic of the person? They matched some characteristics. Uh, you know, a lot of people know about birthmarks and they think, well, you know, the, the idea sort of gotten out that they always match death wounds, whatever, fatal wounds, mortal wounds. But they don't. You know, often they they do. But it can be anything. It can be like earrings. Somebody earring holes can turn up as birthmarks. Tattoos can show up as birthmarks. <laughs> you know, you just, you know, I mean, all sorts of things turn up as birthmarks. If it was meaningful to the person, it can show up in the next life. That's That seems to be the key. So it's like a souvenir from their past life. Yeah, like a souvenir of their past life. Or like a wink from the universe to tell the person who is now incarnated Hey, you've been here before. Yeah. And they, they serve that purpose, not only for that person, but also but for their family sometimes, you know, to let them know that this person, and it just gets even wilder because there are cases of what are called experimental birthmarks. That was Stevenson's term, experimental birthmarks. And what it refers to is cadaver marking. A person dies, and this the, you find this particularly in South Asia, from India to Japan you know, from Thailand, Burma, north to Mongolia, all over that whole area, you find this practice of cadaver marking, less so nowadays than in the past. But anyway, it's reported throughout this, this very broad area. So families will mark a dead body with the purpose of tracking <laughs> their loved one into the next life. I mean, so they must have observed this, right? I mean, why house would it start? And it must be very old practice for it to be so widespread. So what exactly would the, the new incarnation of a person look like or have on them that would say, hey, this is from this past life? Right. Well, they, they, they'll, they'll mark places that you don't normally, like the soles of the feet they'll mark. 
So they might have like a freckle or a scar or a particular line there. Uh, yeah, or it can be a larger blob. And they can be the same color, too. In one of these cases, um, a girl was marked with lipstick, red lipstick on the back of her neck. And uh, the child had had a red area on the back of her neck. I mean, uh, the practice in uh, the southern part of the range in Burma and Thailand is to use soot from the bottom of a cooking pot. And the birthmarks are dark. So the kid gets born and then they see that there's a mark on the bottom of their foot or on their right knee. And then they have some records of the markings on the dead bodies, which are long gone now. And they can say, oh, drawing the line back. And that's who you were. Yeah. You know, if it's it's a birth in the same family, they, they know, okay, granny marked the baby in this way. And, you know, this must be that person come back, you know. But what it suggests is that the consciousness, spirit, soul, whatever we want to call the thing, is hanging around after death, right? And observes the marking and then carries that forward. So it's it's really crazy. You have a theory about how all this happens. Of course, there's always going to be mystery (laughs) until we go through it ourselves, if we go through it ourselves. That's right. The processual soul theory. Will you nutshell that for me? Um, sure. If we have to come up with a theory of reincarnation, what is it that reincarnates? What are we talking about? What reincarnate? People say the soul. Well, what is the soul, for heaven's sakes? You know, I, I read a paper by a, a theoretical physicist, Henry Stapp, who wrote about how personal survival of consciousness was compatible with quantum theory. And I thought if the survival of consciousness is consistent with quantum theory. Maybe all we're looking at here is the survival of consciousness. So that's how I got to equating the soul with consciousness. Then I started looking looking at all the data through that prism, right? So we leave our bodies behind, right? Our bodies die, but our minds, our consciousness continues, right? So what can that do to help explain this? And there are a lot of cases in the reincarnation area and in other areas of parapsychology that talk about life after death, right? Talk about what it's like after that. Like near-death experiences. Like near-death experiences, but also mediumship and apparitions and a lot of other things like this, more exotic stuff. And if you credit that stuff, and some of it is, is just as well grounded factually, evidentially, as the reincarnation stuff is, if you credit that stuff, then it seems like something does survive, right? Consciousness does survive. So what seemed to me to happen is that all reincarnation is, is the possession of a new body by this stream of consciousness. Another part of my theory is that consciousness has two strata. Conscious awareness that we often think of as consciousness, but there's also the subconscious. We're all aware we have a subconscious, right? Which is kind of funny because the subconscious is subconscious, but yes, but we do know, yes. Yeah, right. You know, but we're aware of it, at least, you know. So there's this, there is conscious awareness, and but there's also this this non-conscious stuff that's going on under it, right? So it seems to me that memory, that's where memories are stored, not in the brain, but in our subconscious. And it's not just episodic memories, memories of images and things, but memories of behaviors, of emotions, and all of this stuff is in our subconscious. And what that means, if this consciousness stream then possesses a new body in reincarnation, all that stuff in the past life is still there, but in the subconscious. So it can still influence the person. And in rare cases, this stuff can come up and become conscious. And I think that's what happens with these kids. And I think the reason we see it more often with kids and adults is the kids are, you know, just newly into their bodies, right? Two or three years, typically. They haven't gotten the barnacles of pain and frustration and this planetary world all over them yet to block anything. Yeah, That's right. And their brains aren't fully in control of their consciousness yet. It's not blocking it. You're right, exactly. They haven't all of these experiences and their brains aren't in control yet. And so the memories have an easier time coming up. In a, with adults, they more often come with dreams. In children, they'll come in the waking state. And that, that that's, that's just the same thing, right? So that's how I understand memories 
behaviors. I think the incoming mind, when it possesses the new body, just uses, to use a term from parapsychology, psychokinesis, mind over matter, its ability to influence the body. And we have in parapsychology a lot of evidence for, you know, psychic healing and, you know, parapsychology, see stigmata, for instance, as being, you know, mind affecting body. So there's a lot of evidence for mind affecting body when you get into the parapsychological area. So I'm not, my, my theory doesn't require the introduction of any, anything new, you know, this, which is one of the things that I think it has going for it. And it doesn't require throwing out anything that we know about biology or how babies are created or anything. Yeah, we get to keep all that. We get to keep all of that. We just have to allow for something else in addition. Well, James Matlock, thank you for talking with me. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to be with you. After the break, what does it sound like to have an epiphany during a past life regression? Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. What is self help doesn't help my self esteem. Going through hell trying to fix the worst to me. Sometimes I feel like I feel this forever. Scared after death, it'll never get better for me. That's me. But maybe in my next life, I can live my best life. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. If you've never donated to this station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free. But we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for Public Media Giving Days. And thanks. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. I couldn't get through an episode about reincarnation and past lives without experiencing a past life regression myself, so I found Patty Hall, a hypnotherapist specializing in this kind of work and what's called deep memory processing, based out of Old Saybrook, Connecticut. Now, here are some very important things to know about past life regressions, according to Patty, who's experienced over 150 of these herself and done between two and 3,000 on other people. It's not about whether or not reincarnation is real. It's about using this kind of experience as therapy. To use whatever thoughts and feelings that are coming up to unclog this energy that may have been stuck or twisted up for months, years, or, well, lifetimes. Patty agreed to let me record the session, so you'll hear some of that, and also some reflections from an interview recorded a few weeks after the regression, as I processed some of what I experienced. As I pulled into her parking lot in early November, I had a healthy skepticism about the idea of past lives. As far as I know, I'm about to embark on a three and a half hour improv session with this nice lady. But if I feel something click or I connect some dots that bring me some sense of relief or understanding, yeah, I'm into it. So after getting to know each other a little bit, I laid down on a comfy mat and she began a guided meditation. 
She had me become a bird, flying out over the ocean higher and higher. I could see the town I was flying over, the country, the continent, and then the whole planet. She asked me to see, as I was flying, if I could feel the places below me that had been home before. I list off India, Mexico, the Pacific Northwest of the United States, Ireland. She asks me to pick a place that feels like the pull is strongest. And as soon as I land in Ireland, she asks, What does it feel like beneath your feet? Soft. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have bare feet or shoes on? No shoes on. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like they're hard soles or soft soles? Hmm. It's softer. Yeah. She asked me to describe the rest of my clothes, my face. On your head, do you have any hair or a hat of any kind? I'm not wearing a hat. I do have a good beard. Okay. Well, that checks out. I do love good beards. As I was getting to know myself in that lifetime, Patty would point out when I was smiling or grimacing or when I was holding my breath. Here's her explaining when we talked a week later about what breath holding tells her. It's in that moment of breath holding that you've hit an issue. And so it's, we'll look at it as a hurdle. And then we're looking for the next hurdle, the next time you hold your breath. And the next hurdle is the next time you're And so these are all things that haven't been dealt with. Later in this past life, as an Irish land steward with three kids, my wife tells me that she's leaving us to pursue a life in academia in the United States. She admits that she never really wanted the kind of life that she'd been living with me. And I let her know that if she does leave, she cannot come back, that I can't risk her doing this to me, to the kids, to us. I can't have it happen twice. And it was at that moment I realized that this past life Irish wife she was definitely my former wife in this lifetime, too, who also left me for a very different life. And as you'll hear in this audio from our session, that means... You took her back. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. You're right. And you oh. had all the signals saying to you, don't, <laughs> don't. Jesus. <laughs> this was a profound connection. Here's Patty again talking about this idea of what Freud calls repetition compulsion. We keep repeating, repeating, repeating the same old thing, same old thing until it's brought to the surface and we realize and say, oh, that belongs to that lifetime. It doesn't belong to this lifetime. So when we have that awareness shed on that, it's that the soul can go, oh, it's over. Patty goes on to talk about this kind of soul contract people may struggle with. And somewhere in the middle of this three and a half hour past life regression, she brought me through a very powerful exercise to break that contract. Well, I have the original agreement right here on paper. And if you want to break it, you are very welcome to just stick up right in her face and say, I'm done. And in a moment. Open your mouth and breathe through your moment. So that's the end of your moment. <laughs> All you need to know. <laughs> Don't wallow in the pity of it. <laughs> Just rip the band-aid off. <laughs> you can't put that back together. It's done. Now just tell her, I'm done with this. This is it. This is the last time. Now we're going to get back to the conversation I had a week later with Patty. This part of our experience together made me feel like going back, regardless of whether or not this was an actual past life. Going back to this experience made me feel empowered. Like I could resolve this in this lifetime that I'm speaking to you now in so that in the next lifetime, 
if there is one, I won't do this again. I won't say yes to someone like this. And yes, I am accountable for all the choices I made with her, and it is easy to be and to remain a victim, but I made choices too. And I feel like after this experience with you, with me, it's not going to happen again. A lot of times with victimhood comes uh, lack of taking responsibility. You know, when we think we don't have control or when something happens, like I always use the example of the potato famine or, you know, something like that, where uh, avalanche or I said, you went to Pompeii in the wrong day, you know, where things are out of our control, it sets up kind of a, you know, why do I need to be responsible for that? Because it's, I'm not, I just was there this happened at wrong place, wrong time. And so I think learning to take responsibility for things when you can is a huge step and say, but the thing is, is we don't always know when did I have a choice? Cause I don't see it. I, I, I don't see when I had, it. and so helping point that out is always a big part of my work, which is just shedding right there, that moment. And so showing somebody sometimes where they have exercised their power that they had it and exercise it is so healing. This is at the, the point at which I say in my mind, I need to take this person to a lifetime where they had power so that they know, I, I want to solidify it. I want to make sure that there's no question in your mind. It's like, okay, you realize you made some good choices, but let's go to a point where, you know, you're back. You know, I love that phrase that I'm back. That's always what I want somebody to leave us no I, I am the thing that was lost isn't lost anymore it's back and here's who i am we were also talking before the session even started about vulnerability and openness and how i see myself as someone who's like an open book i play with my cards face up i you can see all my emotions on my face and i like that about myself but at the same time that makes me an easy mark and so after the Irish lifetime, we go to this even earlier warrior woman lifetime where I'm one of like 30 people in this tribe. You ask me, you know, if you're sitting around the fire with your tribe and someone comes up to you and you don't know them, are you going to show them all your cards? Are you going to show them the mark where you're vulnerable? And it's like, no, of course not. <laughs> it wouldn't even occur to you. It wouldn't make any sense. And so you and I spent a lot of time in this past past lifetime uh, getting to know me in this powerful position. I was a respected member of the tribe. I earned that respect. It was intimate and deep, the relationship between the people I knew and loved there. It wasn't at all the kind of environment where I needed to prove my awesomeness to be loved. I, I proved it with my actions and my consistency and my presence, and so did everybody around me. And so but I made you stay there for a long time because I want to drive the point home that, no, this is how it feels when you're in a situation of trust is that this is where you can be vulnerable where they've proven and this is how it feels to be in this sacred grouping in a lot of ways it's kind of how it felt was you know you're in a group of people who as you said have proven themselves to you you've proven to them you're trustworthy but the reason i did it was so that you never forget what it feels like so that you know when you're in it, should it happen. But more importantly is you know when you're not in it. I, I wanted you to know on a soul level, I want you to be reminded on a soul level of what that should feel like. Because they're not victims there, were they? No, not one of them. And it's like, are you vulnerable in order to be trusted or are you trusted and then vulnerable? Like what comes first? And I think a big eye-opening part of that lifetime for me is the vulnerability can come next. You earn the trust first. And I think- It's the prize uh, you get to experience right. when all the other things are in place. Yeah. And at the end of that life with my tribe, you gave me this amazing gift of taking me to my death in that life. I, I 
along with a couple other people in the tribe, died of a waterborne illness. And you asked me to do something in those moments after my death. Let's see if you can see any of these others that have also lifted away from their bodies mm. around mm. you. Yeah. Mm. Why don't you go ahead and gather them up mm. to tell them that you found a way out of here. Because I sometimes don't know how to get out. Yeah. Especially if many have pass away from this to see if they can you just kind of call out and let them know that you found a way yeah I see four others mm-hmm. is there a fire in your village mm-hmm yeah there's always a fire on yeah so just let them know gather them up we're gonna head to the fire yeah and when we're ready we're gonna just step into it and we're gonna follow the flames straight up And we can hold hands, just kind of yeah. Peter Pan style, just straight up. Yeah. And from the flames, we'll go to the smoke. Just keep following it up and up and up. Higher and higher. I loved that moment. I felt empowered because I knew I could be trusted to lead my people not only in life but in death into their next eras and that was truly a gift that I could feel that way like really feel that way for once in my life so thank you you're welcome and also the reason why I like to do that when it's applicable because it isn't always but when it is applicable when somebody lives a life of when they're in that kind of warrior situation where there's a close camaraderie and trust factor. Very much a part of that being is a strong code of ethics and morality. You wouldn't leave them behind. It's like even the modern army talks about that, right? Which is no man left behind. You know, this comes from, I think, that ancient time where it wouldn't even occur to them to leave someone behind. But in spirit, it's no different. It's a final act of service. And that's an important thing for somebody to perform who has who has that type of thinking of, all right, well, maybe I couldn't get you in the last lifetime. Maybe I couldn't. Because because one of the things that happens is when somebody dies and they're drugged, but they're so sick, they don't even have the energy to go over. The, the spirit is still sick. And so in this situation, you're all just like, whoa. And then I said, yeah, look around and see if there's anybody else. And so for you, as an act of service to get them, but as you said, is like just feeling good about it. It's like, wow, I was able to not only get me, but also all these others out of there. And so somewhere in the world, I don't know if you took out a dozen people, a dozen people someplace in the world just got a soul retrieval. I'm always looking to see how many others we can get we're already there it's just a matter of calling that makes me feel really good it it is after we were done working together i felt like i'd run a marathon not that i've ever run a marathon but i imagine it was like a soul marathon i always tell people when they make an appointment to make it on a day when you have nothing else going on afterwards you are going to be tired because the mind is just it's like on super drive while we're working. It's focused for three and a half hours. I slept for 11 hours the next day. I did, but it is all energy work. It takes a lot of energy to do. But what this work does is it puts the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think you get momentum when you put a few pieces in, you know, like, oh, I can connect this one to this one. Anytime you get one piece, it's going to be a shift. You know, the journey really is about how many pieces can I get and not being content with 10 pieces missing of your puzzle. I want the whole puzzle done. And then when you're done with your work or even partway done with your work, then you can help other people do their work. 
if you can be a better version of yourself, you can help more people. And for most people, they are interested in that. You know, and that's what I find, that they really want to. But, you know, to do that, you do have to be that better you, a better version. <laughs> and the more you are, the more you can help. Well, Patty Hall, thank you for everything. Thank you. Well, thank you for working for it. <laughs> okay, one last thing I wanted to tell you about, and this is irrespective of the stories you just heard or the people you met in today's show. If you totally believe in reincarnation, if you're on the fence and you'll find out when you get there or not, or if you remain unswayed, in researching for this episode... I came across this folklore that says that your face, the one you have right now, is actually the face of a person you dearly loved in a past life. Someone who dearly loved you, too. So I hope you know that that feeling that you just got, imagining such a thing, that's real. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford with help from our intern, Taylor Doyle. If this episode piqued your interest, check out the one we did featuring stories about shared death experiences. We talked with a woman named Annie who experienced this phenomenon where, out of the blue, she got an undeniably clear psychic transmission that her mother was actively dying on the other side of the world. It's a remarkable story and something that a surprising number of people claim to have experienced. You can find her story when you subscribe to Audacious on your favorite podcast app. Just look for Shared Death Experience. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Somebody that I met before